Well, we're going to flip things today. We are going to start with the word, so flip 180. You guys can be released if you haven't already. But we're going to just change things up because, you know, we just love change for change's sake, don't we? <laughs> Some of you said amen. Yes. Come on. Come on. Where's my high eyes? It's change, and that's all that matters. So, but, no, I, I want to I wanna share kind of continue on this message about repentance, and I just feel like God's going to meet us at the end, and there's just going to be something the Lord wants to do in our hearts, and we're going to get into worship and just go into the presence of God, but I really, I want to just dive right into this message again of repentance that I feel like the Lord's speaking to us as a church, and really helping us to get a fresh start for this year, amen? Do we need fresh starts sometimes? We do. And so today, kind of what I want to do is I, I want to look at some examples of repentance in the Bible and, and kind of examine what real repentance looks like and, and kind of what is the evidence that you're hitting the reset button the right way, you know, to get that clean slate, to kind of get that fresh start. The Bible's got some great Examples, some great illustrations of what it looks like when we really do repent. And so today, the big idea that I really, really want you to get, I mean, if you remember nothing I say, and I'm going to say a lot, there's a lot I'm going to cover today. It's, it's not enough for two, but a little more than one message. So, But if there's one thing that I want you to, to, to really get to go away to remember, is that true repentance involves the head, the heart, and the hands. That's the big idea for today. Real, true, authentic, biblical repentance has to involve the head, the heart, and the hands. For true repentance to happen, it's got to involve all three of those things. Now, and, and, the, and the way repentance works through us is it usually works through us in that order, which means that it starts in our head, it moves to our heart, and then it works itself out through our hands, you know, because when we, when, if we're going to repent for anything, we've got to first have the thought, I've sinned. I've messed everything up. I've done the wrong thing. You cannot repent of anything if you're not convinced I did the wrong thing. Can I hear an amen? amen? If we never have that thought, it's impossible to turn from it. Right? Remember the definition of repentance is turning. I was going in one direction. If I'm not convinced that this direction is the wrong direction, then I will never turn from it. So it's got to start with our head. We've got to get it into our mind, our thinking. It's impossible. The head has to come first. We have to be convinced in our thinking that we've sinned. And, and that's why the apostle Paul said what he said. You know, he said, I thank God for the law. The law. He said, I thank God for the law. Because if it wasn't for the law... I would have never been convinced what sin really was. 
So he's grateful for it. He thanked God for it. Even though it didn't produce life, it brought him to the first step in the journey of having life. So our head has to be the first step. And then secondly, true repentance then has to move from our head and it has to get into our heart. In other words, our emotions have to be touched for real repentance to happen. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it tells us that godly sorrow, everybody say godly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So if our heart does not hurt or doesn't break for the wrong that we have done, then no real repentance has occurred. And I'm going to show you that. Repentance has to move from the head and has to get into the heart. We have to acknowledge with our thinking, our head, that what I've done is wrong. And then we've got to feel godly sorrow. We have to feel it. It has to touch our hearts. Amen? But this is not the final step. Okay? For true repentance to happen, it has to work out through our hands. has to be practical. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, it says that John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea. And his message was, he was saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now we're going to jump down to verse 5. And so many people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea, and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Verse 8, Produce fruit and keeping with repentance. That's a very important thought. Produce fruit in keeping or befitting of repentance. Now, what is fruit? Well, fruit is something that's visible, right? It's a major indicator of what kind of tree I'm looking at. I go up to an apple tree. I see apples. I go, this apparently is an apple tree. Orange, banana, whatever. Fruit is a major indicator. Fruit is not fruit if it's hiding in the tree. Right? Yeah, all the, the parts are there, the nourishment, the sap, the life, whatever. But it's not fruit until it's hanging out on that branch. And that branch is available and visible for everyone to see it. Young, old. Everyone. So when we hear John the Baptist say, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, he's saying, 
You need to live differently if you claim to be living my message of repentance. That's what he's saying. Now, we should all be able to see the change and the direction of your life. Everyone. That's the fruit of repentance. I was going this way, and everyone noticed I'm now going this way. The fruit of repentance is not just emotion. The fruit of repentance isn't just the thinking. It's not your thoughts. No, the fruit of repentance is action. Everybody say action. Action. When we truly repent, we live differently. And it's evident to everyone around us. When we really repent, our friends at school notice. When we're really living repentance, our coworkers will notice. Our family will notice. I remember when I first came to the Lord, and I, I gave my heart as a kid, but of course life and teenage years just messed all that up. And so here I am, my first year, I've finished college, and I decided I'm going to live radically for Jesus. And so I did. And I didn't tell my family, I didn't tell my parents, I just started living different. And it was so different that my own father came to me. I remember it specifically. He goes, I don't know what's happened to you, but I need what you have. It's like, it's called sellout, that's it. Dad, I had a buddy, a friend of mine that I had had for years through junior high and high school. Calls me, and I come over to his house one day, and we're just sitting and hanging out. And he looks me in the eye, and he starts to cry. And he says, all I see is light in your life. I have to have what you have. And I led him to Jesus right there on the spot. A changed life should be visible to everyone. That's the fruit of repentance. I didn't just think differently. I just wasn't sorry about what a mess up I was. I lived differently. And the light of God shone so bright, people wanted it. We should not have to go into great explanation as to how we've changed to convince someone. Think about the movie Christmas Carol. It just came out of holidays. I'm sure we all watched it maybe a hundred times. I did. Love Christmas movies. (laughs) Think about that movie for a moment. That that movie, that book originally, now a movie, it paints a beautiful picture of this principle. 
The principle and the process of repentance. You know, throughout the story, we watch Ebenezer Scrooge, who is a greedy, selfish man. And he goes on this journey. And while he goes through this journey, the first thing he has happen in his life is he first becomes convinced in his thinking that he's living in the sin of greed and self-centeredness. And then as the story moves on, he finally moves into his heart with his emotions. And he starts to experience the remorse, the anguish over how the path of his life is leading him to sorrow and lonely despair, the death of a child, and ultimately his own death. And I ask the question, how do we know that that transition really happened for him? Did the narrator come at the end of the story and say, and Ebenezer was a good old man, and he died and everything went well? We saw it, didn't we? How do we know he repented of who he was? We see it in how he lived his life after his encounter. Scrooge, you know, when he busts open his bedroom door, he doesn't, you know... Just start yelling, hey, I had a dream about changing, and I've changed, everybody. He doesn't do that, does he? You know, Scrooge, he didn't go to Bob Cratchit's house and have a long talk about how bad he felt about being greedy and, and try to convince Bob that he's changed. No, that's not what he did. What Scrooge did was he lived his life in a completely different way. He turned his back on greed, and he lived the new life of a generous man. He didn't have to say anything to anyone. He just lived it. Scrooge lived out his repentance, and the whole city felt it. Oh, do you feel that? Church, listen. When we really start tapping into our destiny as a church and we start calling youth and young adults to repentance and those young people start responding, I want you to know this whole city will feel it. When we keep and continue and even more intensely call husbands and wives to repent to one another, I want you to know this whole city will feel it. When we start calling our governmental and our educational leaders to repent and they respond, I want you to know our whole county will feel it. Jesus himself expected this kind of repentance. You know, over and over Again, in Scripture, we see Jesus speak directly to the hands part of repentance. Never do we ever read in the Bible Jesus saying, uh, just think about what I said and you'll have eternal life. Right? 
Jesus never asked a crowd of people, is anyone feeling sorry about what you've been living or hearing after what I just said? Anyone? Anyone? You? Good, good. You're in, all right? Anyone else? Anyone else kind of feel bad about how you've been living? You? Oh, good. You're in. Maybe. No. Jesus never said, do you just feel bad? Do you think you did wrong? Now what he says, is he says, go live differently. Remember that story about the woman who was caught in adultery? And the, the men of the town bring her to Jesus and they want to kill her. Of course, they're trying to also trap Jesus in the process and Jesus is brilliant. He says, you know, go ahead and kill her if you have no sin in your life. Go ahead. Everybody walks away. And in chapter 8 at verse 10, Jesus stands up. And he saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't say, go and think about what you've done. He said, stop. What about the crippled man that Jesus healed? In John chapter 5, we, we read this story about how Jesus healed this crippled man. And then he just, the guy goes off and Pharisees rebuke him for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And like, who did this? And I don't know who it was, but I'm walking. Well, later on, Jesus they sees him at the temple and and in John chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says this to the man. Later, Jesus found the guy he had just healed at the temple, and he said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Do we see? Over and over again, when Jesus encounters people, he expects them to live out that encounter. The fruit of repentance, according to Jesus, is that we stop sinning. It's the hands, how we live. That's the fruit. So I want to look at some examples of false repentance. And then we're going to look at some great examples of good repentance. I'm sure everybody's familiar with the story of Pharaoh and Moses. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, the great I am told me to let his people go or, you know, we need to go worship. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to do it. So bad things happen to Egypt and 
Pharaoh says, okay, you can go, but then he doesn't let him, and so more things bad happen. And then he says, okay, you can go, and then they don't, and then more bad things happen. So this kind of goes on, you know. Well, in, in Exodus 9.27, Pharaoh finally calls in Moses and Aaron, and he says, this time I've sinned. <laughs> the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. He had it in his head. I've done the wrong thing. Clearly, people and things are dying. I'm wrong. But that's as far as it goes, isn't it? So we know that even after he let Israel go, he goes, yeah, no, I want them. They're coming back. And he pursues them, and he loses his army. What about King Saul? He's a great example of head-only false repentance. You know, Saul was out with his people, his, his army, and they were supposed to go into battle, but they couldn't go into battle until they offered a sacrifice. And only the prophet can offer the sacrifice. And so they're waiting on Samuel, and Samuel's taking too long, and they're getting antsy, and they're ready to go to fight. And they're like, Saul, you do the sacrifice. Saul's like, I can't. It's not for me. It's for the prophet. He has to come and offer the sacrifice, and then we'll win, and it's all going to be good. No, no, no. We can't wait for him. You do his job. You're a king. Go do his job. And so he's a people pleaser. And he does it. And it's wrong. And in 1 Samuel 15, 24, after Samuel finally shows up, Saul said to Samuel, he goes, I've sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions, but I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Ugh. And here's the sad thing. It was only in his head. It never got to his heart. And it never worked itself out into his hands. He keeps doing the wrong things over and over. And nothing really changes for King Saul. In fact, he loses everything. He never really repents. See, it never got out of his head that I've sinned into his heart and then worked itself out in how he lived. Now, there's some people who have tried to repent, but it only got through their head and then into their heart. I think a great example of that kind of false repentance is, is in the story of Judas who betrayed Jesus. In Matthew 27, verse 3, it says that when Judas, who had betrayed him, Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. And what's he say? I have sinned. He said, for I have betrayed innocent blood 
What's that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. And so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and he hanged himself. This is a great picture of head and heart only false repentance. You see, if it was genuine repentance, he would have went a different path. He thought he could fix the problem on his own. And he killed himself. That's not authentic repentance. I think another great story is in the book of Hebrews. Starting in chapter 12, verse 14, it says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. How many times have we seen those cop shows where the criminal gets caught and now he's crying excessively? Just ball and tears in the back seat of the squad car, right? Anyone besides me seen those shows? Yeah. Bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? You're gonna get caught and cry like a baby. That's what you're gonna do. You know, but they get caught and they're balling in the back seat, and, and we can look and see clearly that they have it in their head that what I did is wrong, right? Clearly, they are emotionally upset at the fact that they're going to jail. But is this godly sorrow? Everybody say, no. No, that's worldly sorrow. He is emotional because his life is about to become incredibly inconvenient and uncomfortable. Now, the, the criminal, he's, he's saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please give me a second chance. I won't do it again. Begging the officer for forgiveness. But it's not true repentance. Ultimately, the criminal has no respect for the law, and he has no respect for the people who he has sinned against. That was Esau. Esau did not care about God or others. In fact, verse 16, it tells us, it says that Esau was a profane person. Now, what does profane mean? Simply, it means he was godless and sacrilegious. You see, Esau had it in his head what he had done wrong. He was very emotional 
about his situation, but the word tells us he found no place of repentance. See, nothing changed in his actions to show I have sinned. I sold my blessing. See, if he, I believe that maybe if he would have really repented, he would have come, come to Jacob, his brother, who got the blessing. He would have fallen down at his knees and said, Oh, brother, I'm sorry, I've sinned. Will you have mercy on me? I will serve you. Only let me not be departed from your presence. And as you become a father of nations, have mercy on me and I will serve you. That would have been going in a different. But instead, what did he do? He hated Jacob. And he made it his life mission was to kill him. I want you to know head and heart doesn't cut it. It's not real repentance. Now, I want to mention one more false repentance. In the Bible, there were a group of people who were known for living right and doing good things with their hands. And by all outward appearances, they were living and doing the right thing. But Jesus had a problem with them, and he confronted them. I'm talking about the Pharisees, the religious people of Jesus' day. See, the problem with the Pharisees was that they had the head part and they had the hands part, but they lacked one vital component to true repentance. Anybody guess what they missed? Everybody say it. The heart. They missed the heart. And Jesus hammered them for it. In fact, he scolded them. He warned them sternly. He called them dead on the inside. Jesus refused to accept head and hands only lifestyle. Over and over, Jesus told the religious people to look at your heart and live out of your heart. See, we cannot just go through the motions of doing the right thing. True repentance has to touch the head, the heart, and out through the hands. I'm telling you, our churches are filled with people who do the right thing. They look like they're following Jesus. But their hearts are not in it. 
Jesus warned people who live that way. As a matter of fact, after a really scathing rebuke concerning several issues of hypocrisy, Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 33, speaking to the Pharisees, he says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? I tell you, we are not living true repentance if we skip over the heart. You can't just do it head and hands. It's false repentance if it's only head and hands. So what does real repentance look like? I think the Bible's got some great examples of head, heart, and hands repentance. And I think one of the guys that we've already kind of talked about is King David. And we all know the story of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And the story, David just does unbelievable wrong after wrong, sin after sin. He commits adultery with Uriah's wife, probably raped her. And he tries to trick and deceive Uriah in believing that he was the one who got her pregnant. And when that didn't work, then he plans Uriah's death. And then dishonors him even more by placing him in the heat of the battle and pulling back the army. I mean, Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He was willing and ready to die for David. And he died a dishonored man on the battlefield. All for the sake of David trying to cover up his sins. Now I want you to know, this story is not just David having a rough day. This is not a bad hair day. This is a process. This was something he was practicing of unrighteousness, and it worked out over months. So the question we have to ask is, why then David, a man who's under the old covenant, who should have died, who should have been killed for everything he did, why was the kingdom and the favor of God not taken from him like it was from Saul. It's because when David was confronted by the prophet, David took full responsibility for his sin. And he spent seven days on the floor weeping and groaning in deep repentance before his God. And how do we know that that repentance was true repentance? 
Because when he got up off that floor, he was a different man. And there is no record in the word of God where he ever committed that sin ever again. There was never another Bathsheba ever. In Psalm 51, David is crying out about this whole issue. Verse 10, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Did David teach transgressors the ways of God? Everybody say, yes, he did. He taught transgressors the ways of the Lord. Did he sing of God's righteousness? Yes, he did. The fruits of David's repentance are clearly visible for us. We don't have to look for it hard. It's all right there. He got it right. His true repentance went from his head to his heart, and he worked it out in his life. Let's look at another person. What about Peter? I mean, come on. Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. That's more than Judas's one betrayal. What's up with that? Why did he get treated differently? Why did... Peter or David have it a different outcome of his life than other men who had done less. Saul never killed or raped or lied. He offered a sacrifice he wasn't supposed to do. He took some extra gold and sheep when he wasn't supposed to. I mean, comparatively, we would go, huh? What's up with that? David rapes, murders, kills, lies, deceives. And he keeps the kingdom. What's up with that? See, the difference, it's not about the sin. It's what happened after the sin. In Matthew 26, the story is clear. It says, after a little while, those standing There went up to Peter, and he said, Surely you're one of them, for your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them. He turned the air blue. I don't know that man. And immediately, a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside, and he wept. That's the picture of a broken man over his sin.
And his head and his heart were wrecked with sorrow for how he had just denied Jesus. But we don't see until later the hands part. In fact, in John 21... Starting in verse 15, when Jesus had died, he'd been resurrected, and he's going around and seeing people, and now he's with Peter eating breakfast. And when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, he said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Then again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Can we look at the word of God and can we see, did Peter feed and take care of the sheep of God? The people of God. Yes. It's evident That his repentance went from his head to his heart. And he lived it out in his hands. Another great example would be Zacchaeus. In Luke 19, verse 5, it says, Jesus reached the spot and he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now I want you to notice something here. Notice that Zacchaeus didn't say, Listen, here's what I'm thinking about doing. No. What did he say? He said, look. He said, look, watch how my repentance is working out in my life. And Jesus said that salvation came to his house that day. That's powerful repentance. How many believe that Zacchaeus got a fresh start that day? 
know, David, I think he found the secret. He, he said in Psalm 51, verse 17, he says, The sacrifice that you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. See, it's the true heart of repentance that made the difference between guys like David and Peter versus people like Pharaoh, King Saul, Judas, and the Pharisees. I love 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, it says this. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claimed we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in us. James 5 verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Church, it's time for us to walk as free men and women. Free before holy God you know he's not angry he's just waiting for us to come out from behind the fig leaf of shame so that we can get back to what we were created for walking with the Lord in the cool of the day time to return to innocence and freedom. It's time for us to walk in the light with a fresh start. And if you get nothing out of today, I want you to get this. True repentance has to have your head, your heart, involved. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I want to share a dream I had a little over a month ago about our church. <clears throat> and in the dream, we were outside of the church building. The building didn't even really fully look like our church building, but I, I knew it was. It looked like it was more like in a mall or a small strip or something. But anyway, we were all sitting outside in folding chairs, and we were having church. And Eric stands up, and he's got the handheld wireless mic, and he does what he does on Sunday mornings. Welcome. Good to see everybody. Thanks for coming. God's going to do something powerful today. 
And when he finishes his greeting, he says, um, he goes, well, I'm going to hand it over to Tom because he has something important he needs to say to us. And so he hands me the mic, and I'm still sitting in my chair, and I start to cry. And out of just the depths of my heart, I say, I have to repent to you. We have not done a good job of leading you in a way in how we are to reach our city. And when I said that, I just cried. And I could see Eric, and he was kind of walking towards his seat, and he started to cry. And I said it again. I am sorry we have not led and given a vision for how to reach our city. I just said it over and over. As I began to weep and cry, and Eric was, could feel the Lord was trying to, to come to us. And then I woke up. I really feel that we were sitting outside, and, and one, one of the things we can, you can interpret sitting is rest, but also in the context of my dream, I think sitting represents an activity. And we were all outside. We were out there, and we were all sitting. And so I want to repent for not giving a vision of how to reach our city. We have spent, since 2007, seven years, trying to get this group of people healthy. We have been very focused on ourselves, trying to fix marriages, trying to fix finances, trying to fix broken hearts, Trying to get kids help, parents to parent. We've been staring at ourselves for seven years now. And I'm sorry. We're going to continue to offer those resources, but it's time for. time to quit being selfish it's time to become a lean and mean soul winning machine and so I just want to say I'm sorry we haven't done a good job with that and will you forgive us But I'm not just sorry. We're going to do something about it. This year, we are focusing on two things above everything. One is evangelism. And the other is discipleship. We are going to call this church, especially if you're 30 years or older, 
it's time for you to be a spiritual mom or dad. We're glad you're here, and we love you, and we need you, and you are part of the family of God, and you are part of the body of Christ. But we're called to reach the next generation. That requires you to be a spiritual mom or dad. And so we're going to focus this year on equipping and leading us to reach the lost. And then we have a net of moms and dads, spiritual moms and dads, to catch and to disciple those into the kingdom. And it's going to get uncomfortable. It's going to get uncomfortable. You may leave. Because we're going to put a lot of pressure on you to be a soul winner and to be a disciple maker. You're going to get asked by me and other leaders, who are you discipling? No one. The next question will be, why? But by the grace of God, we are going to change. And we're going to start changing our city. could have real quick just have the ushers come forward we want to receive our offering and then we're gonna we're gonna have Lindy come and I want her to share a testimony now we're gonna pray for the offering father in the name of Jesus we thank you for this chance to worship you with our giving we thank you God that you've given us seed to sow so today we offer this tithe, we offer this offering as an act of worship as an act of declaring you are God and our lifestyle shows it to receive this offering today, Father, from our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. I've asked Lindy to come and share her testimony about what God's been doing in her heart. I just ask you to stay engaged and to listen so you can see what God has in store for us and for all those that we plan to call into the kingdom. Wendy, if you would. Um, over the last six months, or maybe even a little bit longer, I have been in a out-of-control tailspin of depression um, to the point I've been suicidal. Uh, my husband and I even had to consider having me admitted somewhere because it had gotten so bad. 
I would fall on the floor and grab his ankles and beg him not to go to work because I was afraid of being left alone because of what I might do to myself. He would call me from work and if I didn't answer the phone, he would leave work and rush home or beg my best friend Chase to come sit with me. And when he would come home, he would weep with relief that I wasn't dead. Him and I both prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for God to relieve me of this depression and nothing got better. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse to the point I had to get put on some heavy medications. And uh, my spiritual mama called me one day and told me that her heart breaks watching me go through what I'm going through. And uh, she misses me. Nobody in my life has ever missed me. And she was one of the main people I needed to repent to, ironically enough. But um, she offered me help if I was willing to really start diving into some healing and freedom. And uh, through some you know, Theo and all that good stuff, um, it became apparent. I had not just opened some doors and windows, I had opened some airplane hangers for the devil to have a foothold in my life. And you know, I really, really thought that there's no way that I'm sinning. I mean, I used to do drugs. I don't do drugs anymore. I'm not in jail. I'm not, you know, how am I sinning? I'm leading a better life. I mean, I have custody of my kid and I'm not, you know, doing drugs and I'm not, you know, robbing banks and I'm not committing murder. I, I've changed. I go to church and I pray, how can I be sinning? And it, uh, It was through help too, but you know, it's the things like I was going to school for the money that's stealing and it's fraud. I was willing to compromise my moral integrity in ways such as allowing my children to watch inappropriate movies so that I could people please, and that's idolatry. Um, I would uh, use names and gossip and I would slander people and God had to deal with my heart and he had to show me his face and how he cried for me not because he was mad at me but because he was sad that I had allowed these things to take hold of me in the way that they had. And uh, I thought that that would be the hard part, but it wasn't. Um, the emotional pain of knowing that I had opened these doors and done these things wasn't the hardest part. The hardest part was cleaning up my messes. And so um, I'm going to share a, a real tangible example of how you clean up your messes. And, you know, 
couple weeks ago when Tom asked me to share this, I started to write out what I was going to share, and I was just like, you know, kind of broad with my example. And last night, late at night, the Lord just talked to my heart, and he said that I needed to be very raw and real with you guys on what I had to go through. And so um, I asked Scott and Carmen Cash's permission to use them as my example because they were some of the first people I went to in repentance, but when Scott and Carmen took over um, facilitating Connect Group, my heart was jealous and full of envy because, you know, Dave and I have been going to this church longer than them. Once again, Tom and Eric didn't see my potential, you know, and uh, when people would complain about the change, instead of honoring God ordained leadership, I would join right in with the complaining. And by me doing that, <laughs> I poisoned hearts towards Carmen and Scott. And I had to tell them that I had done that. And I'm pretty sure that they had no clue. And uh, so I called. Carmen and asked if I could come meet with her and Scott to talk to them. They had no idea what I wanted to talk to them about. And uh, I sat down with them and I bawled my eyes out like probably a little bit harder than I am now. And I begged for their forgiveness for what I had done. And uh, you know what? <laughs> I will tell you that freedom started to happen to me the minute that I seen tears in Scott's eyes. And he thanked me for being an example. I really thought I was going to go there. And no joke, I thought like the God police were going to come for me. Like seriously, Tom was going to be at my house with the God handcuffs. I was going to have to pay some like big time. I'm serious. I really thought that. I mean... I was scared to death to start going to people because I just knew that something, you know, I'm going to be judged and everything else. And these people, they, they cried with me and they prayed with me and they encouraged me and they said nice stuff about me. And, um, you know, there's been a dozen more people that I've had to go to in this congregation that have done the same thing. And, um, you know, I left Scott and Carmen's house that day and, um, I wasn't even all the way out of their driveway. And I, I noticed that I had a smile on my face and you can ask Dave and Chase, they can both tell you I hadn't smiled in a very long time. And, uh, I started wanting Jesus to be next to me like I wanted to really feel him I wanted him more than my son or my husband or anybody I just didn't ever want to leave that car because it felt so good and God felt so real and I felt peace I've had to go to at least a dozen more people in this congregation over different feelings of hurt, whatever, 
and repent. And almost every single situation has been the same where people embrace me and love me. And I think you all are out of your mind that you react that way. Um, but I get it now. I know you react that way because you, you've felt Jesus reacting that way to you. And I've spent so many years being so afraid of him and what he's gonna do to me for my wrongs that I wouldn't allow him to react that way to me. And, uh, you know, I got to come home and share this with my husband. <laughs> a few days later, he ended up at a couple in this congregation's house repenting to them. And uh, he called me when he left their house and he was crying and I was like, oh Lord, he's been in a car accident, something's bad. And he goes, I don't know, I don't understand why, but I just feel so good right now. And um, he's been at church every Sunday since, you know? And um, I'm, I still got a lot of messes to clean up. Most of you have probably seen the email, you know. Dave and I are having to move, and we got to go from our beautiful remodeled house to a dump <laughs> and have to put a bunch of blood, sweat, and tears all back into it again because we've sinned in our finances. You know, the Lord's shown us how when we go out on Friday night for pizza and then don't tithe because we need to pay our cable bill, that's sinning, it's stealing from God. And it's wrong. And our lives and our children's lives are never gonna be under God's covering and fruitful in ways that we really desire to be if we don't stop acting that way. And so, I first want to tell you guys that um, there are many people sitting in here that over the years that I've been here have even heard me make, you know, when I first came here, I used to make the joke that Tom Preble gives me diarrhea because I get so nervous around him, you know, and um, while I made you all laugh doing that, I was, I was breaking God's heart and opening some really bad doors for a lot of pain and destruction in my life. And I'm sorry that I opened those doors for you too. You deserved better from me and I was not being an example that Jesus wanted me to be. But there's one person in here they're just struggling because they're sad all the time and they don't know why Jesus won't fix it. Ask yourself what you're not doing to fix it. Because it's really not that hard to fix your messes. It's not as scary as it seems. It's more scary to continue to live that way. So, um, I think I'm done. I don't want to keep crying. No. No. Dave, come here. 
just want to say how much I appreciate your vulnerability and your honesty. I'm just going to ask everybody to stretch your hands towards these two. I'm just going to bless them. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for my friends. Thank you for the work of God that's oh so deep in their hearts right now. Father, you said that whoever sins we forgive, they will be forgiven. And today I forgive their sins, God. In the name of Jesus. And now, Father, I pray a blessing to be poured out upon them, God. I pray, Father, for increase. I pray for their revelation to increase. I pray for their finances to increase. I pray for their emotions to enlarge. I bless their marriage. I bless their children. I bless their relationship with their children. I speak favor on their lives. And the glory of God will follow them wherever they go. We release you from your sin. For you are a son and daughter of God. And he is very pleased with you. bless you both in the name of Jesus. Everybody says, amen, amen. You called me your friend. <laughs> I love you. I love you, brother. A few weeks ago after Lindy had come to my house, um, I felt the Lord really speaking to me about revival and how God has placed us in this church for a heart of revival. And in my head, you know how you try to visualize what a revival looks like? Well, I thought it was going to be this big tent meeting, you know, with all these people that are like face down on the floor and are just like... I'm, I'm sorry, God, for what I did, you know. It's not what it's looking like, guys. It goes from house to house to house to house to house. What does repentance, if we know anything about revival, what's revival start with? Repentance. Always. God will not trust us with that amount of people until we are sold out for him. He won't. We gotta get this. Or our sin is going to hell. We have to get it. So in our minds, it's gonna go from house to house to house. They're gonna be contagious right now. When you are in that much repentance, you are contagious with the Spirit of God. So watch out for the trailblazers you just saw. They're going to affect so many people because. 
they now know how to repent and they know they'll now know how to stay there because they know what it looked like so i pray a spirit of repentance comes over your home first and then imagine as we all get into that uh that in love with the lord then we can have these tent meetings we dream of that our people are just on fire for him and we're getting thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of souls saved that's when it'll happen but we can't get the cart before the horse we got to be able to handle it michelle preble says to me all the time got to be able to handle it god's growing us up because we can't handle that amount of salvations yet we gotta know how to hold on to it Okay, so I just wanted to put that in your heart and, and I know that God, that's what God's doing. We're going to have conflict and I said a year ago when we started Connect Groups, I'm praying for conflict and I am regretting that at some point. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I'm the one that's getting to grow in that area too. But it's conflict that causes us to grow and repent. So praise Amen. God. Thank you for your example. Amen. Let's stand up. We're just going to, I want to get in the presence of God even more. just want us to just get in his face and.